are listening to a Commonwealth Bank of Australia Global Economic and Markets Research Podcast. This podcast provides general market-related information and is not intended to be an investment research report. The information contained in this podcast is based on previously published material, and before listening, you're advised to read the full Global Economic and Markets Research Disclaimers, which can be found at combankresearch.com.au. Welcome to the Global Economic and Markets Research Podcast. My name is Belinda Allen and I'm a Senior Economist here at ComBank and today I'm joined by my fellow Senior Economist but in the International Economics and Currency Team, Kim Mundy. Kim, nice to have you on. Hi Belinda, great to be joining you for the podcast today. Now, we're not talking about either the global economy or currencies, we're actually talking about one of our other favourite topics which is, I guess, climate change. And in particular, the last 10 days or so, there's been a huge amount of focus on the highly anticipated COP26 conference, which is the conference of parties uh, that's been happening in Glasgow because countries in particular had to come and bring, I guess, new targets into how we're going to reduce global warming. Why was there so much anticipation going into this conference? Yeah, there were a few reasons why this was a, uh, an incredibly important meeting. And uh, the first reason is that it was the fifth COP, essentially, since the Paris Agreement mm. was signed. And under the Paris Agreement, every five years, countries have to bring new, more ambitious, nationally determined contributions, or NDCs, to really show how they're going to um, reduce their emissions to keep in line with the Paris Agreement. Goals and those goals are to keep uh, global warming well below two degrees uh, above pre-industrial levels. But there was a particular focus on trying to get that down to 1.5 degrees this year. And the second reason that it was, I guess, so uh, closely watched this year was because it did follow a report published earlier in the year by the International Panel on Climate Change. And that panel actually highlighted that the planet's already warmed by around 1.1 degrees and the authors called it a, a co-red for humanity. So it really brought a renewed focus to the fact that actually at the moment, countries' emissions reductions targets are really well short of the Paris Agreement's goals. So there's a lot of pressure to step up those goals to try and align them with that 1.5 degree target. So leading into... COP26, Australia in particular had been called out because we hadn't committed to net zero by 2050 and a lot of other countries had, particularly some of our major trading partners, some of them had even gone further by committing more goals to reducing carbon emissions earlier. So 2030 seemed to be Mm -hmm. a, a new target. Australia did commit to net zero by 2050 in the lead up to COP26. It seems like a lot of the focus at COP26 was net zero, whether or not that's net zero by 2050. Some other countries did formally adopt net zero targets. What was the focus at COP26 on that net zero goals? Yes, so net zero ties in really closely to the Paris Agreement goals because essentially the idea is that if you're going to limit temperature increases to 1.5 degrees, the way to do that or the only way you're likely to do that is that net greenhouse gas emissions are at zero, so that's your net zero, by 2050. Mm. So that's kind of 
what's been driving all of this focus. And, you know, we did see a few more countries unveil our new net zero targets over, especially over the first few days mm. of COP26. So uh, India's net zero announcement was possibly one of the most surprising and they did pledge that they would reach net zero emissions by 2070. We also had announcements by Vietnam and Thailand, also Nigeria. And, you know, if we do take all of that together, Bloomberg was estimating that about 62% of all global greenhouse gas emissions are now actually captured under a net zero target. There's another 27% uh, under discussion. So, you know, we're getting very close to over 80% of global greenhouse gas emissions now being captured under a net zero target. But what I guess is still a bit of a of an issue is that we have these long-term targets mm. reaching net, you know, around 2050, but currently a lot of uh, countries' shorter-term targets, which is where that focus around 2030 that you were talking about mm. earlier, don't actually align with them managing to reach that net zero target. So that's why there was a bit quite a strong focus as well about increasing the near-term ambition around starting to reduce net emissions. I guess that's important on a number of fronts because not only do we want shorter-term goals to make sure the longer-term goals are met and to keep countries on track, but it also means you're less likely to get a really uh, distorted, I guess, run to meet these targets in the longer term, which we can also talk about later. But one development we did see was an increased focus on global methane pledge. And that's a really important way for countries to really meet their targets. What was the update on that front? Yeah, that was actually quite a surprise uh, to come out of COP26. I don't think many people were, were expecting that in the lead up to it, but what we saw was over 100 countries, which represent about 70% of the world economy, signed uh, the Global Methane Pledge. So this pledge is the plan is to reduce global methane emissions from human activity mm. by at least 30% in 2030 from 2020 levels. So actually it's quite a substantial reduction. And when you look at the, I guess, the science, I mean, we're not scientists, mm-hmm. but methane is about 20 six times more potent for global warming than carbon dioxide. So it is one of the key target areas to help reduce global warming over the near term. And I think especially if you look at where countries, you know, as we were talking before, countries' longer-term targets versus their shorter-term targets, if we do see this methane pledge, if countries do manage to reduce their, their methane emissions, then, as you said, it might just mean that we don't see such a a volatile Mm. transformation to a lower emissions economy down the line because progress was so slow in the near term. Yeah, and I think that's where you're right. It's about the pledge earlier in 2030 and reducing emissions by then so it gets easier to meet them and more orderly to meet them in 2050. Now going into this, uh, I guess here we've also spent a lot of time looking at carbon trading and how that may help to actually reduce carbon emissions or incentivise, I guess, countries and businesses to reach their goals. Was there any update at COP26 on the outlook for carbon trading? There was a lot of focus on this and negotiations on carbon trading went for the entire duration of 
uh, COP26. Mm. And that's not surprising because it, it had been six years and countries still hadn't been able to agree on essentially the goals, that were, the, the rules that would over um, overlook how carbon emissions were traded. But essentially the idea of it is that, you know, if you have a, a market for carbon offsets, what that does is it turns one metric ton of CO2 equivalent removed from the atmosphere mm-hmm. into a commodity. And that that's easier for markets to understand. That means a market can exist, people can trade it, um, people can profit off it. And it is expected that that can help to accelerate the, the shift towards net zero. I mean, there have been studies done, one by the International Emissions Trading Association, which said that, you know, if we do see comprehensive rules on Article 6, that could actually reduce the total cost of implementing countries' NDCs by about US $250 billion a year by 2030. So that's a pretty substantial yeah. saving. Um, now, in the final days, we did actually see countries agree on a set of rules. So we are likely to see some more progress now on on that carbon international carbon trading. Now, the, the cost of, I guess, reducing carbon emissions, particularly amongst developing countries, really seems to be a sticking point. Doing this is, is not cheap. We need the funding to do that. Exactly. So governments can help achieve that, but developing countries seem to will need, I guess, the financing. And we know developing countries do emit, I guess, a larger proportion of carbon emissions compared to some developed countries. Was there any commitments to funding from governments to help accelerate? It's it's a really interesting, um, I guess, element of all of these negotiations Mm. is the fact that, you know, you're looking at global warming being an issue and a whole lot of, you know, poorer nations Mm. are actually feeling the brunt of climate change impacts that we're seeing already, but they're not necessarily the ones that have caused Earth to warm. Mm. So going all the way back to 2009, developed countries agreed to provide a minimum of US $100 billion a year to developing nations by 2020. They fell short of that last year. They won't meet that this year. Mm. Um, but given that there were some new commitments provided during COP26, uh, they might reach close to it by 2022. And I think one of the reasons that finding this finance is so important is because actually a lot of developing nations NDCs are conditional on receiving adequate funding. Right. So if we think about India pledging to reach net zero by 2070, they, they've said that they won't actually update their NDC to reflect that until developed countries commit US $1 trillion wow. by 2030. There's a lot of pressure on developed countries to start um, providing more finance. And so far, COP26 wasn't, wasn't a game changer on that front by any means. But the private sector is really stepping up on this front and that's something we've seen over the last 10 to 15 years is private investors, large superannuation funds are really looking at financing green assets. So yeah, can we, can we get there? I guess the question is, will the private sector step in if the public sector don't finance? And what does the private sector need to really commit more funds to this sector? There was one of the standouts of COP26, I think. And uh, I mean... 
for the private sector, especially around finance, we talk about super funds and insurance mm-hmm. and, and a lot of that, there are very real risks associated with climate change. So they're trying to reduce the risks of their exposures. Yeah. Um, and that is seen a bit of a shift in, in where funding is going to. But one of the things we saw at COP26 was uh, the UN Special Envoy on Climate Action and Finance, Mark Carney, so he used to be the Bank of England yes. um, uh, Governor. And before he that, Bank actually, of Canada. <laughs> yes, yes, busy, busy man. Yes. Um, he announced that more than 450 financial institutions who represent over $130 trillion in assets had signed what was called the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero. So essentially the goal of this alliance is to bring together the financial sector to accelerate the transition to a net zero economy. And, you know, having having this money sitting there ready to finance the green transition is fantastic, but you do need to be able to monitor that. Mm. And that's a really important one. So you need things like comparable and consistent disclosures to actually know whether signatory firms are on track to same, you know, to, to, to delivering these promises. Yeah. Um, but that was where we saw another development which will go some way in helping with that. So the International Financing Reporting Standards Foundation, very easy to say, <laughs> um, announced that it was, it was going to launch the International Sustainability Standards Board, or the ISSB. And now the aim of that is to deliver a comprehensive global baseline of sustainability-related disclosure standards. And it sounds a bit boring, but it's very, very important because there will be comparable disclosure standards, which means investors can make informed decisions. It also means that some companies in some countries can actually move ahead of their domestic policy because they can align themselves with these international comparable standards. And we do think that will be really important for companies who receive some of their finance from offshore, for example. It makes sense. I mean, we have standardised accounting standards. You'd have standardised disclosures on the environmental side as well. So that sounds like it's going to be a really important uh, way for companies to move forward and for investors to get on board as well. So just thinking about the impact on Australia from all of this, we've spoken a lot uh, on these podcasts and in your research notes as well about what the impact on Australia could be. What's kind of the the thinking from here? I mean, we are a very small open economy. We are very subject to what happens globally. Exactly. And I think one of the first things that can impact Australian businesses is this push by the finance sector Mm. um, to to accelerate the, the transition to net zero. So we're expecting this could mean that finance companies start to require more of companies. For example, um, we expect investors and, you know, probably increasingly governments as well are soon going to be requiring detailed reporting of climate-related risks and also details of transition pathways. So this means as a business, it's likely that you're going to need to consider what your transition strategy looks Mm -hmm. like, how you're going to measure it, monitor it, report it, you know, all of these things. Uh, are going to be very important um, for getting finance, getting investment in, in the future. But I think another thing that stood out, especially for Australia, is that there was a lot of focus on moving away from fossil fuels. Yes. 
So one of the goals of COP26 was to consign gold to history. Mm. Um, that has, has not happened. But we have seen that many countries are going to be actively moving away from fossil fuels in favour of renewables. Now, we all know that Australia exports a lot of uh, fossil fuels. Coal resources make up a large portion of, of Australia's exports. So really, all, all it does is it just reinforces to us that Australia's economy is really exposed to other countries' emission reduction reduction targets mm. and not just the federal government policies. And I think that's something that's really important to keep in mind. That's a timely reminder. Kim, it's been great to get your assessment of COP26, <laughs> which has been a, a very uh, interesting conference to watch over the last uh, couple of weeks. Thanks for joining. Thank you so much for having me. Now, you can read Kim Mundy's report on COP26, a progress update as talks risk heading into overtime, which was published on the 11th of November 2021 on combankresearch.com.au.